People are the most consequential and dangerous forces on Earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lett. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome back for episode four of the Science of Personality podcast. Uh, We have a really cool topic today. We're talking about the dark side of personality, which is something that uh, at Hogan, uh, we've been focused on since um, doctors Robert and Joyce Hogan did their research on basically looking at why um, leaders fail and looking at the different reasons why and kind of coin this as the dark side of personality whenever they introduced the Hogan Development Survey in 1997. So we were trying to find a good guest to discuss this topic with us. And uh, after some conversation with Ryan, we decided that uh, we would bring on Dr. Peter Harms to, to talk with us today. So uh, Peter, is he's an associate professor of management at the University of Alabama's Culver House College of Business. Uh, his research is focused on the assessment and development of personality, leadership, and psychological well-being. And his work's actually been featured in some popular media outlets such as CNN, uh, Scientific American, Forbes, and the BBC, among others. And another fun fact about Peter is... Uh, his name is a sentence of which uh, the direct object wants no part of. So, uh, Peter, what else should the audience know about you before we dive into the episode? Um, I've been doing uh, psychology for about 20 years. I've also uh, been working with the U.S. Army, NASA, and the U.S. Department of Labor for about 10 years on issues regarding resilience and well-being in the workplace. But uh, as you sort of noted, uh, what I am sort of best known for is my work with uh, narcissism in the workplace, as well as some other uh, dark personality traits and motives. Yeah, well, uh, of course, uh, you know, that's I think that's stating it pretty lightly. Peter is a pretty world renowned expert when it comes to dark side and dark side personality traits. And so we are super thrilled to have Peter on on the episode today. And, you know, it's kind of funny, right? So here we are. This is episode four. We're talking about the dark side. Uh, You know, I uh, my favorite Star Wars episode was episode four. Uh, where we first learned about the dark side, although, you know, our dark side doesn't really have anything to do with the Star Wars dark side. I think that's uh, kind of ironic. It feels like you planned that, Blake. Well, you know, I didn't plan that because I'm not quite the Star Wars nerd that you are. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. Maybe I found better things to do with my time, Ryan. But, <laughs> you know, hey, just a funny coincidence. It worked out. So, you know, uh, with that, let's just kind of explain, you know, what is the dark side of personality? Um, well, I'm assuming you're throwing it over to me. Um, yeah, so the... <laughs> I am, Peter. The, the dark side, we, we sort of contrast that with what we call the normal side of personality. So perhaps in your other uh, episodes, you've covered uh, the big five or some other models of personality, uh, where it's normal people and how they behave, think, and, and experience emotions under normal circumstances. Uh, The dark side uh, deals with sort of a a different realm. Uh, Sometimes we call these derailers. Uh, A lot of psychologists refer to them as subclinical uh, traits because behaviorally they they share some similarity to clinical syndromes. Um, But they tend not to be as extreme as those. They're different in that these are uh, quirks of personality that aren't chronic, they're not persistent all the time, and they don't tend to inhibit your ability to function in everyday life. In fact, sometimes they can actually be positive. Uh, One thing that a lot of people talk about with these things is they're the the aspects of you that emerge under situations of stress, Uh, whether that stress is a particularly extreme element or it's persistent and it just sort of wears you down. Uh, 
a lot of psychologists will be familiar with this idea of sort of the thin veneer of sanity, where, uh, you know, if you go back to Freud or psychodynamic models, you've got this id, this sort of dark impulse, and, and you're trying to keep it in check all the time. And essentially what happens is something breaks it. And when it breaks, then it emerges and you start to do these nasty, bad things. Uh, I myself would argue that, you know, that's sort of a, a nice way of describing it most of the time, but it's not always true. Uh, there are circumstances where these dark personality uh, characteristics can be a little bit more persistent. Uh, and we know, in fact, with some of them, for instance, things like Machiavellianism, uh, people are actually sort of actively finding circumstances to go out and cause trouble. Um, so it isn't really, you know, that circumstances are causing these people to act in this way. They're finding those circumstances. Uh, but these are really important, uh, even though they tend to be sort of episodic, um, that is, you know, infrequent behaviors for the most part. Uh, all of our research indicates that the dark side really is impactful for uh, social functioning, particularly in the workplace. And in my own work, uh, we found that they're as much as three times more important or impactful than normal personality. Yeah, I think that's a, a great overview, Peter. And, um, you know, just just borrowing off or, or riffing off you what you were just saying there, um, there was a really excellent uh, paper done by a couple of economists a few years ago. And it's one of my favorite papers because it's a, the title of it's called Toxic Workers. And it's the whole paper is all about personality. They only use the word personality in the paper one time. And all of the paper is about these dark side personality characteristics that ruin teams and ruin organizations. And similar to your finding, one of the things that they find is that avoiding a toxic worker, or in this case, avoiding a, somebody with real dark side problems, um, is worth somewhere between four to 12 times as much as hiring a superstar. So that is, if you had to choose between those two things, or, or another way of thinking about it is like this. How many superstars would I have to hire to replace one to or to, to make up for one toxic worker? It's at least four, which I think is really um, dramatic. And, you know, that this tells us about how important the dark side really is. Um, so for those of you who, who are sort of new to Hogan, maybe uh, one of the things that, that's, in, I think, uh, useful to know is that Hogan really brought this to the forefront, as Blake said, in, in 1997. Um uh, uh, Bob and Joyce were were uh, trying to understand why managers derailed, and there was a whole uh, host of other factors going on at this time. And other people, I won't mention all the research, but John Bentz was doing some research at Sears, and, and a whole host of others um, identifying that or just noticing that these sort of patterns for for why leaders failed or, or how leaders failed, and um, that that's what inspired them to create this sort of. Um, the, the sort of dark side. Now, uh, shortly, you know, right, right around the time Hogan started putting out the, the HDS, uh, another sort of academic tradition started talking about the dark triad, which is really a different sort of thing. And I know it's something that Peter knows a lot about. So, so I don't know if Peter, do you want to talk to us about, you know, about the dark triad and, and what makes that sort of stand out? Uh, certainly I will. Uh, I can, uh, I actually studied under, uh, Del Paulus, who came up with sort of the notion of the dark triad. Uh, this is just a set of what you would call particularly noxious characteristics, uh, narcissism, Machiavellianism, and psychopathy. And these are really all oriented around, uh, again, noxious traits that hurt other people in, in some way. There's not really a, a guiding theoretical framework, and there was really no reason for clumping these together other than they had been three aspects of personality that had been studied, not just in the clinical literature, but sort of in terms of what, how does this express itself in normal people? Um, just to offer some clarity as to what these things are. Narcissism, I think a lot of us know, uh, we think what it means, but essentially it's like toxic self-esteem. These are people who want to say, I'm not just great, but they're so invested in making themselves better than you that they also want to insult you. So I'm great, you're terrible. And that's really what causes them to be problematic. Uh, Machiavellians, you can think of these as just sort of cynical people. They love to manipulate and play tricks 
on other people. They, they're just chronic liars, uh, and they seem to get some pleasure out of that. And then with psychopaths, traditionally, we just sort of consider them people who are very impulsive, but it's also characterized by a lack of empathy or ability to experience emotion, uh, such as anxiety. These are all sort of, these can be very extreme. Uh, these are labels that we often attach to people who we don't like. Um, yeah, so a pretty extreme personality. Okay, Peter. Well, now that we've uh, you've given us all a, a detailed uh, and in-depth look at Ryan's personality, um, huh. uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm joking, everyone. No, Ryan's lovely. Um, I wouldn't have him as a co-host. That's what my mother you. says, anyway. <laughs> so, so with that, uh, you know, outside of the dark triad, you know, what are some of these other common dark side personality behaviors? That we see, you know, particularly whenever dealing with coworkers or, or in the workplace in general. Uh, yeah. So as I was mentioning, you know, the, the the dark triad stuff came about because researchers were interested in it. I, that may say something about the researchers themselves or what it's like to work in academia. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that these are the most common things that we see in the workplace. And dark personality is a tricky beast to sort of say what is the most common because as with all personality, there's sort of what, you know, is internal to the individual, and then there's what is displayed externally. Uh, so, you know, what you see and what you don't see about others. And there's also sort of a, a frequency effect. You know, we remember, like, aggressive outbursts. Like, if someone gets mad and starts cursing in the workplace and throwing furniture or breaking their computer screen, we're going to remember that. And, like, everyone's going to share gossip about that for, like, the rest of time, right? Um, but what about the minor stuff? So something like paranoia, where it's all in someone's head. They're not necessarily displaying that, but, you know, they're saving all of uh, a certain amount of emails that they get for a potential, like, HR lawsuit or something like that. Or, you know, one persistent thing that uh, I've seen a lot in the workplace is, you know, the really passive-aggressive people who like sending emails and CCing the boss or CCing all people in your workplace in order to try to embarrass someone where it's something they could have asked one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. That would be an example of like a dark side personality and it's fairly persistent and it actually it can be very detrimental to other people in the organization. Um, but, you know, when people think about the dark side, they're usually thinking of the big showy bad stuff like the dark triad and they're not thinking of these minor persistent things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it, it's a tough question to answer because it really depends on what you mean by uh, common, what we remember versus what we experience. And, and I think often uh, the more common thing is these, these little sort of daily grinds that sort of get to you and are very wearing uh, on your interpersonal relationships. Yeah, I think that's a great point, Peter. And another one that, that it reminds me of is sort of like the sort of cold shouldering people, right? Or, or in, in our terminology at Hogan, we would call that being uh, uh, reserved, which is sort of just like, um, you know, whenever somebody needs something from you or if they've irritated you or if you're under a lot of pressure, you just kind of turn away from everybody. You just um, uh, kind of uh, uh, don't communicate, right? You, you don't respond to their emails or you just... Um, delay uh, having a meeting with them or anything like that. Um, those sorts of behaviors, you know, are pretty common, right? That, that sort of cold shoulder effect. Um, but, you know, we don't really think of that, right, as, as, a, as a dark side in some extreme way, which, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, you know, and, and at Hogan, you know, there's, there's the dark triad of, of academic researchers like you've talked about. Um, one of the ways that we talk about our, our measure on the HDS is having these sort of three broad clusters, which don't really map onto the dark triad. It's a different kind of triad. So the first kind of cluster is moving away. And one way to think about these is that they are ways to deal with problems or threats, right? I have a problem or a threat. Well, what can I do? Well, one thing I can do is run away from it. And that's kind of like I was mentioning with the cold shouldering, but there's other things I can do um, as well. I can uh, freak out and give up on the project. I can um, not make a decision when it's really critical, right? Uh, this is sort of, sort of trying to avoid the problem in some way. Um, another way is to attack the problem. And that's like either to lash out at the problem or the person causing the problem. Um, that's I mean, to use your narcissistic example to to do things to make uh, to to put the problem to blame the problem on somebody else and then you you know so that you can sort of prop up yourself. 
Um, that's sort of moving against others. That's one way to deal with that problem is to hurt other people so that so that you don't have to deal with it. Um, and then the last way is is this moving towards, which is like um, either working really really hard, being perfectionistic, it's um, or, or being like really a sort of a, a a yes person, right? Saying oh yeah yes whatever you say, I'll do whatever you want. Um, that that's another way of dealing with somebody who's who's really stressing you out. And so so those are the three ways that we talk about it at Hogan: is moving away, moving against, and, and moving towards. Well, that's really interesting. And, and earlier, Peter was talking about how uh, you know these dark side tendencies they emerge whenever somebody is under stress or, or, or extreme pressure. But are there other areas where maybe we would see the dark side of personality emerge in the workplace? And, and Peter, I'll hand that to you first. Yeah. Uh, so getting back to the the stress issue, I mean, one reason they pop out is because there's social sanctions at work. So like you you might resent someone or you know, maybe they chew their food too loudly or something like that. Uh, but there's social norms that we have uh, in the workplace and in, in everyday life. And so we we don't always say what we think or what we feel, and we don't act on all of our impulses. You know, if you're attracted to someone in the workplace, you don't like immediately ask them out because there might be rules about that there or something. Uh, so we suppress these things. But, you know, there are times where you're under a lot of pressure. And you can think of like economic conditions. Maybe there's a lot of layoffs. Maybe you work in a tax office or something like that, and it's March or April, and, and you've been working long hours and things like that. And then someone gives you just a little bit extra work, and you've been having a terrible day, and you're overwhelmed. And maybe even you smile at that person. You say like, oh, thank you. I'll handle that or whatever. But you go to your car and you start smashing, uh, you know, the, the the steering wheel and sort of screaming to yourself because, like, you just can't handle anymore. And so you see those those kind of outbursts where they're episodic like that. Uh, we all see other contexts uh, that can be sort of uh, things that allow it to emerge as well. So we know that that people feel a lot less bound by these social constraints where they have power or autonomy. And so we see a lot of bosses will say offensive things or do offensive things or behave in ways that workers wouldn't feel comfortable doing because the boss feels like that they don't have anyone evaluating or judging them for those particularly offensive behaviors. And so people in power tend to display these uh, somewhat more than other people's. Um, but a big contributor to this, and I think where you actually see these characteristics really emerge on a consistent basis, is a cultural effect. Uh, so if you, you know, go into Google and start looking up uh, like a company like Uber and their, their culture, I mean, they ended up having to sort of throw out their CEO because they had established a very sort of law-breaking uh, sexist sort of, uh, you know, they were called like the Uber bros, like just a really toxic culture. Um, but it had been normalized and, and maybe people in that environment didn't even recognize how, uh, toxic, uh, it had become. And so like you sometimes can't see things because you're not outside of them. And then in retrospect, you're like, wow, that was a huge mistake and we shouldn't have been like that. And they've obviously made a lot of sort of strides towards cleaning that up. Uh, so, you know, culture can have an effect. And then just one thing that we often don't take into account, and this kind of gets into what uh, you folks at Hogan do, uh, which is economic conditions can also sort of provide a context for this. Because uh, let's suppose it's really hard to find good workers. Well, we get a lot more permissible in terms of who we hire. We try to find people that are minimally sufficient uh, to do jobs and we don't do proper screening. We just take whoever walks in the door. And, you know, a couple of years ago, this was true for a lot of organizations, you know, it was just uh, run a criminal background check or a credit check or something like that, and then just hire everyone. But if you're not doing appropriate screening, uh, people who exhibit these characteristics are, are walking in and it sort of gives them carte blanche to do uh, what they want to do. And particularly in industries where there's really high demand uh, for some types of workers, you can think of like cybersecurity. It's extremely difficult to get cybersecurity experts. Well, it's well known in that industry uh, that a lot of cybersecurity uh, technicians and managers have extremely toxic personalities because um, they're just seen as so valuable by their companies that they have to tolerate that. And when you tolerate bad behavior, 
uh, you allow it to sort of become unleashed in the workplace. So there's, there, you know, there's stress, there's, uh, you know, autonomy and power, there's culture, and then there's just prevailing economic conditions. And all these things uh, play a factor in, in whether you're going to see these things in the workplace. Yeah, I think those are all excellent points and a really good way of putting it, Peter. I would sort of summarize all of those things in one broad category of sort of letting your guard down, right? So like what happens when you let your guard down? Well, you're, it's either when you're under stress or when you've gotten too comfortable. Like you said, if you have too much power, too much autonomy, then you might just say, well, now I can kick back because, you know, it's kind of interesting. I'm thinking about the work from home thing that lots of people are experiencing right now. And, and to what degree does that extra little bit of autonomy allow more dark side behaviors to leak out or to creep in in certain ways. Um, yeah, but I think that's really the sort of the, the way I would put all those in one place is to say it's about when you let your guard down. Yeah. And, you know, that kind of brings me to, to thinking about my own profile where and, and Ryan, you talked about the the moving away, moving against, moving toward derailers and really two derailers of mine that stick out just to kind of give the audience some context is. Are, are mischievous, which I think I broke that scale. You probably had to go in and retool <laughs> that one a little bit. Uh, and, and also dutiful. And so, you know, if we're talking about whenever I'm under stress or, or pressure, it, it's really dutiful that comes out for me. I'm, I'm thinking, okay, everybody is being, you know, everybody is under the gun right now. The best thing I can do is just sit down and just knock out my to-do list. Just make sure that there is no reason that anybody could think that I'm slacking or not doing my job. That's how I kind of handle that stress and pressure. But, you know, into that letting your guard down realm that you just discussed, you know, I think boredom is what triggers my mischievous. And, it, it, you know, you, you talked about the work from home thing. I've had to find ways to channel that mischievous behavior, uh, whether it's through our marketing Slack channel or or something like that. But, um, you know, I, I, I've kind of been, you know, as, as someone who works for a company where you're, you know, preaching strategic self-awareness all the time, trying to really kind of, you know, look within myself and what my scores tell me about myself and knowing that those are my two main derailers and when they tend to surface. Um, but with that, you know, I am a PR guy. So mischievous, can have its benefits whenever you're trying to persuade an audience or, you know, to convince your public of, of this thing that we want to convince them of. So with that, I'd like to, to throw this question out to both of you is what are some examples of how dark side tendencies can be advantageous? That's a good question. Um, I mean, we have to remember that sort of from an evolutionary framework, uh, these behaviors wouldn't exist if they didn't, if they weren't adaptive in some ways. People wouldn't do them, uh, and so there must be circumstances where the these are valuable. And some of some of the dark side ones are, are pretty easy. So something you guys call uh, diligent, you know, some people would refer to that as something like perfectionism or something like it's really sort of obsessive about getting things right. Um, that can make you an excellent worker. And you can think of like lawyers or accountants or something like that, where you'd really want someone to be like that. Uh, the problem is, is, you know, where they become so obsessed with the details that uh, they start holding things up or holding other people to their own standards and things like that. Uh, other factors, uh, like in, in your model, you call it dutiful, you know, uh, being a, a, a yes person, uh, sucking up to your boss, I mean, it might not be good for your organization always, but it's great for your career. Uh, and in fact, you know, when the government did their takeover of GM, uh, the people who came in to sort of clear up GM when it went bankrupt, they were saying, hey, the, the entire sort of senior team here was just full of yes men. And this was one of their problems was they lacked any sort of vision. They were just doing what they'd always been done. Uh, with regards to, you know, the research literature, we found things like, you know, uh, moderate levels of narcissism are actually pretty good. Because what does a moderate level of narcissism look like? Well, it looks like confidence, you know, and that can be really good for meeting new people. And quite often you're, you're good at sort of convincing them that you're a wonderful person to be around for about 20 minutes. Uh, and then maybe it starts to wear on the other people that you're, you're kind of um, irritating. And even some people have tried to redeem things like psychopathy, where they're like, listen, um, 
there's circumstances where this could be valuable in the workplace at a strategic level or even at a, a lower level. So if you've ever been in business and, you know, I've had to do this, but firing people can be really tough. And, uh, you know, because you're thinking about what are they going to do? How are they going to react? Uh, are they going to slash my tires or hit me? Um, if you're kind of moderately high on psychopathy, you don't worry about that. And so terminating people would be really tough or really easy for you. Downsizing would be really easy to you. Um, you know, and they can make those hard decisions without ever feeling bad about it. Um, and. You know, sometimes you'll even find that, again, if these characteristics aren't too high, that they don't get up to the noxious level, they can actually make you well-loved. And I've known some professors who were very narcissistic, and they talked about themselves and their research and in their classes all the time. And then you go to their RateMyProfessor.com ratings, and the students will say, yeah, this person talked about themselves nonstop, but they're also you know, very self-aware of it. They're not putting down other people and the students love them and their coworkers love them. And so somehow it ends up working for them. And so it's really one of these, you know, everything in moderation sort of situations. Yeah, I think those are great examples, Peter. I mean, one example that comes to mind for me or, or one one thought that comes to mind for me in this case is that it, it seems like oftentimes these sort of dark side characteristics um, can actually get you promoted into roles. Um, and then that's when they become a problem, partly for some of the reasons I think that you mentioned um, is that as you get promoted, you might have more power, more autonomy, more authority, feel um, you feel um, uh, so big that they can't let you go or they can't fire you too big to fire. Um, and so then they, these sort of tendencies might leak out. But, you know, I, I mean, and I can give some example. I'll give an example from from real life that isn't necessarily uh, necessarily so negative. But uh, when I was uh, in my former career as a professor, um, all of my best graduate students scored super high on diligent and super high on dutiful, which as a, as the advisor of these students, I absolutely loved it, right? As they're, as, as they're, they had to report to me. So basically what that meant was that these students did exactly what I wanted, exactly how I wanted them to do it, right? Without any questions asked. And they knew what I wanted to do and they did it perfectly. And I didn't have to oversee them. I didn't have to micromanage them or anything. And it was just wonderful because they would just do everything exactly the way I wanted and it made it super easy for me to run a, a productive lab because they knew what I wanted and they would just go do it. So it was sort of like having people who would do what I would do. Um, but now I got to double my time because somebody else would do it for me. Um, and so that was fantastic for me. But what I would talk to them about before they would graduate was how this is really going to be a problem if they're trying to run their own lab. Because um, being high dutiful as a graduate student is fine. You can do whatever your advisor says. But being high dutiful... If you're the if you're the leader, if you're the, supposed to be leading the lab, is a real problem because you're, everyone's looking to you to make decisions. Everyone's looking to you to come up with the ideas. Everyone's looking for you um, to to put the direction forward. And if you're high dutiful, you don't do that. You're waiting for somebody to tell you what to do. And so, in many ways, this thing that that like makes you really productive in this case as a graduate student would actually be costly for you as as a leader of a lab or a professor. Yeah, and that's, I'd like to chime in here too, because, um, you know, even outside of my role at Hogan, you know, I do for fun on the side, a lot of uh, feedback sessions for people who I've put through the assessments. These could be friends, family. Also, uh, we work with, you know, a lot of Tulsa's uh, young professionals group and, and do some of their, you know, you know, some development uh, uh, initiatives for them and put them through the assessments and do feedback sessions. So, Ryan, you talked about dutiful, but I'd like to touch on diligent real quick because whenever I'm going through a feedback session and I look down and I see this, you know, somebody scoring between 90 and 100 on diligent, um, whether they're in uh, a leadership role at that time or if they're just part of a team, the first thing I ask them whenever we get to that score is I say, do you like to work for a micromanager? And 100% of the time they say, absolutely not. And I say, okay, well, whenever you do ascend into a leadership role, do know that a high diligence score suggests that you are going to be a micromanager in some sense. So you need to be mindful of that, that if you don't want to work for a micromanager, you need to try not to be one yourself. So 
that's just one of the things I like to point out whenever we're going through feedback sessions with people. But uh, as we're moving along, you know, we have noticed and, you know, there's a lot of articles out there uh, about how organizations and, you know, particularly HR departments, they kind of ignore the dark side of personality in their selection and development programs. And, you know, maybe it's just because it's, it's, you know, just easier to not address them. But I'm curious to get, uh, Peter, your thoughts, and then Ryan, your thoughts on um, why they, organizations across the world are just ignoring uh, the dark side whenever it comes to selection and development. Uh, well, I think part of the thing is, is it's a, it's a hard conversation to have with people. So uh, you talk to a lot of students who go into HR, and the, these are the folks I teach. Uh, they don't do it because they want to make harsh judgments about other people. Um, they do it because they're genu genuinely sort of people persons, you know, that they they want to help and they see that sort of as the function of HR. They like other people. And so, you know, when you're talking about the dark side or derailers or subclinical, um, these seem very harsh and mean, bad sort of things. And to give people feedback on them, uh, you know, it just makes makes them uncomfortable. So there's sort of an uneasiness there. Um, I think traditionally, uh, there's been a little bit of a scare in terms of uh, the relationship with clinical disorders, because uh, you will find that the, the research community tends to use the, the uh, clinical labels pretty liberally uh, without understanding that these are very different uh, than clinical assessments. And so there's concerns about whether like legally these can be permitted. Um, but another thing I would point to is just, um, it's, it's almost self-reinforcing. Most uh, consulting companies, when it comes to helping, you know, organizations do selection, they don't have a tool for this. They don't have measures for it. You know, they might try to make proxies or something like that. But these proxies that are derived from other measures, they really just don't capture the flavor of it at all. And so basically, there's there's no one providing these instruments. And, and as it hasn't really sort of entered the ecosystem on a super wide scale outside of companies like Hogan, and I think I can think of maybe one other that sort of covers this terrain, um, it's just not out there. So people might be unfamiliar with it and unfamiliar with why it's important. Because, of course, a company that's not selling it isn't going to say, this is incredibly important. We don't have a tool to measure it. Uh, they're going to tell you the exact opposite, right? That's ah, not important. Don't worry about it. Um, so there's there's some disincentive for them to recognize that. When it comes to the things that the researchers are interested in, uh, like narcissism and Machiavellianism, um, to be honest, there's just not uh, equivalents, like selection level equivalents that are, are being used anywhere. And so there's a real disconnect between what the research community is doing, what the practitioner community is doing, and it just, you know, I would say that th these things are getting enormously more success, like people are recognizing this. And if you look at a lot of popular press books, uh, you'll see people really recognizing how important these issues are. Um, but there's just, uh, a you know, a lack of um, lack of tools a lot of times. And then, uh, like I said, you know, the HR people themselves maybe feel a little uneasy with this. And so... Uh, it does help, I think, times to have uh, labels that don't sound so negative and ways of pitching this as it's not always bad. There could be positive aspects of this. And so, you know, the, those negative la uh, labels aren't scaring people away. So making these things more understandable and more accessible uh, and more developable uh, should, uh, should help organizations uh, make them more willing to embrace this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's absolutely right, Peter. And, and we're going to talk here in a minute, I think, about some of the sort of the bright side of the dark side or some ways that the dark side characteristics can help you uh, as well. But I think it's really important to note here that, you know, the dark side is really detrimental to organizations if you don't pay attention to it. So um, we've done a bunch of research here at Hogan. We had a presentation at SIOP a couple of years back where we showed the incremental validity of the dark side. So if you're familiar with our measures, we have the HPI, the Hogan Personality Inventory, which is our bright side or sort of like our big five like measure for those of you who are familiar with that. 
Um, and, and that does a really good job of predicting workplace performance across a whole bunch of jobs. But what we find is that if you add the HDS, you add our dark side measure, you get even additional predictive validity above and beyond what you get with just a big five measure. Um, and significantly so, enough that um, you know it would have real ROI value for, for organizations. But at the individual level, right? So that's at the organization level. But even at the individual level, uh, the dark side is really important. As I talk to people, when I do feedback sessions, which I don't do as many as Blake does, but when I do them, I talk about um, you know, the bright side as being, this is your potential. This is what you do. This is um, you know, what you're good at. These are the kinds of jobs you'll be good at, kinds of jobs you'll be a good fit for. The dark side is the stuff that's going to get you into trouble, right? So the, the bright side is what, how you're going to make your career, how you're going to be successful. The dark side is what's going to ruin your career. It's what's going to derail you. It's, going to what, it's what's going to send you on, on the wrong path and ultimately lead to you not achieving your career goals or not achieving that potential that we see on your bright side. Yeah, and that's the really interesting thing about, you know, whenever you do dive into one of these feedback sessions is, you know, there are sometimes you look at a profile and there's a lot of red on there. You know, which I say a lot of red, that means they're having high scores on our HDS measure. And and really that's, I find it surprising just how, you know, people are, we go through the HPI first typically, and then it's like, okay, are we ready to dive into the dark side? And everybody takes a deep breath and, all right, let's do it. But usually I, I find that the, the discussions and the conversations that we have around the dark side end up being so beneficial to that person just to help them develop that strategic self-awareness. It's like, okay, I know that these are some, some things I need to work on. These are some things that can get in my way, but the really like the first step in anything is just kind of, you know, admitting that this is an issue and it's something that you can work on from there. Um, and Ryan, you alluded to that. I do want to jump in on that because I totally agree with the point you just made, which is that one of the things that we see with bright side stuff, I feel like when you do feedback sessions or even when you take the assessments yourself, is you sort of felt like you knew that bright side stuff. You sort of came away going, yeah, 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 but I already knew that about myself. When you get to that dark side stuff, it almost always seems like you just see that look in the person's face like, holy cow, what you just said to me makes so much sense, but I had never really thought of it before, right? So it's like sort of like, now that you say it, I recognize it, but I didn't, I wouldn't have recognized it if you hadn't pointed it out, right? So it's sort of like, I didn't know that before. I kind of knew it, but I just hadn't, you know, recognized it. And you see that with the, with these dark side assessments, which I think is, has that real value for, for an individual. Yeah. It's kind of a moment of clarity that they have. It, it, it's as if there has been something that's been holding them back in some capacity. And then once you, you kind of point to it, you have these, these data points that you can just show them like, you know, here's this, here's maybe some instances when this might surface or what this looks like when it happens. And can you, and then you ask them, can you, you know, maybe give me an example of how this has happened to you? And they, they know, I mean, they already have one in mind whenever you're having that conversation, once you bring it to light and it's, it's really impactful. And I, I, I feel as if that discussion is always my favorite um, whenever doing those feedback sessions, because it, it's so beneficial to the person who, who's getting that that feedback. Um, so Ryan, you alluded to this earlier um, about maybe the bright side of the dark side. So what are some of the common dark side personality characteristics of effective leaders? Okay, so that raises an interesting question, which is what is an effective leader? Because um, there, there can be a couple different definitions there. You know, I, I think back to uh, a study that was done in the 70s called Real Managers, where a guy named Fred Luthans, he basically went around and just followed a bunch of managers and looked at, you know, what they did on a day-to-day -day basis. And he differentiated between what he called successful managers and uh, productive or, or effective managers. And what you found the successful managers doing was they spent all their time uh, networking with the people above them and trying to think of ways to get promoted and doing a lot of impression management. Whereas the effective people, the, the actual sort of productive managers, were the ones who were talking to their workers and making sure they knew what they had to do. Um, so, you know, when we're dealing with the subclinicals, we often have to differentiate between leader effectiveness and, and becoming a leader, what we call leader emergence. And so we see certain characteristics like narcissism quite often being associated with becoming a leader because when the job board comes up and it's like, do you want to put yourself up for a promotion? 
the narcissists are right there, right? They're the ones with their hands in the air first. And, you know, a lot of us, we just, that's not in us, you know, we're just happy with our job, happy to get paid or something. But uh, those, those people jump, jump at it. Um, that said, I think that there's a lot of misconceptions when it comes to the dark side and leadership. You know, if you look on, on websites like Forbes or CNN or um, other, other places like that, you'll see these scare headlines once in a while, like one in five CEOs is a psychopath or 25% of all Silicon Valley founders or, you know, this or that, you know, bad term or something like that. Um, and to be honest, I've done extensive research into this. And for the most part, the dark side traits that we talk about, these derailers, don't offer huge advantages when it comes to being a leader, at least not like senior leader. Um, there are a few like narcissism that do, but for the most part, they don't. Um, and at that point, usually a lot of audiences, they're like, okay, thank God that we don't have, you know, people with dark personalities in leadership positions. But that's not true because we find usually no relationship uh, between dark side characteristics and leadership. Uh, so it tends to be very small, which means we're not screening them out either. So there's a real problem there if these people are destructive in their workplace or they're causing problems and they're getting promoted. And that's, in fact, what we find is that organizations are not very good at detecting these characteristics. So they promote them at the same rates they promote everyone else. And then they put these people in a position of power where it's harder to get rid of them quite often. Um, and then they can do all their bad things. And they tend to get promoted again and again, because quite often what you see with these characteristics is um, that all of their negative actions are downward. It's to the people underneath them. They don't act in aggressive or hostile ways to the people above them. That's where they do their impression management. But they do the bad stuff to the people beneath them because they think that they can. And so it can end up like producing toxic cultures and things like this. Uh, but your question was, is, you know, what, what makes them effective? And there are certain circumstances where uh, these people can be effective. I think, you know, earlier what I was saying with like narcissism, like moderate levels of narcissism, that's just confidence. And you definitely need confidence if you're going to be a leader at some point. You know, the, the absolute worst leaders uh, that I found in my own research are the ones who definitely don't want to be there, the ones who have been forced. You have to kind of want to be there and believe that you've got that efficacy for doing the job if you want to do it um, at some level. The other thing that we always have to remember is being a senior leader in an organization is an incredibly stressful job. It requires a lot of hours, a lot of, you know, resources and health. You know, you talk to uh, people or listen to stories of people who run Fortune 500 companies, and they'll tell you they're getting three to four hours a night, and they, you know, they're on call 24/7 because they're running multi-billion-dollar organizations. They have to make huge sacrifices in terms of their family life and their well-being and their their health. And I think it's been rightly pointed out by some people that only individuals with somewhat disturbed personalities would be willing to make those kind of sacrifices where their ambition is outweighing this need for well-being and relationships and other things like that. And so uh, a lot of these characteristics can be necessary for you to uh, be able to function and adapt and, and make it in, in corporate life. Uh, probably not at the extreme levels, but some element of these things seems to be a, a necessary element. Yeah, well, th those are really, uh, really good insights, Peter. And, and I like that, that insight that it's not that organizations are promoting narcissists and psychopaths. It's that they're not not promoting them, so to speak, right? It's sort of, sort of like, well, we're not uh, keeping them out either. It's sort of a sort of fifty-fifty whether you get one or not, which which is a which is a really good point. Um, you know, one of the things that I would point to when thinking about uh, dark, dark side personality characteristics that, uh, that that effective leaders have, I think just like you said, Peter, uh, I think certain levels of these things are really um, critical. And, and getting into that leadership role, I think it's, it's in part about fitting with a particular culture. So I'm thinking about some organizations that we work with, some clients that we work with, 
that um, you know they work in a particular industry. Um, one client we work with, safety is a huge issue for them, right? So this is a client who works in, in the uh, the uh, oil and gas industry, and safety is a really big issue. It's no surprise to find that their leaders score a little bit higher than average on cautious. They're really reluctant to make decisions. They like to analyze everything. They like to take their time. Um, well, and it's also no surprise that there's lots of engineers in that firm as well. And and, and so I think part of it, part of getting into the leadership position is fitting in with that culture. And, and, and what that ends up doing is you end up driving these characteristics that are sort of seen as a positive, even though, um, you know, being overly cautious tends to be a negative thing on average. In certain organizations, it can have that sort of positive effect of saying, well, that's what we need in this one. I've seen similar kind of findings with um, leaders who run, for example, retirement uh, companies, right? Companies that do uh, investments for, for retirement. Well, you kind of want your the person who's leading your uh, investments for retirement to, to be a little bit on the safe side. You don't want them to be just uh, too aggressive and, and too risky. Um, and so I think in certain circumstances and certain cultures, um, high dark side or certain dark side characteristics can actually be positives. Well, and Peter brought up a really good point too, you know, about... Um especially whenever somebody is going to be facing the public, you know, and kind of that certain level of confidence, you're going to, you're going to need that just really to be in order to survive in a role like that, which leads us to my last question of the podcast episode today. It's uh, what are some of the common dark side personality characteristics of politicians? Okay. So uh, obviously this is um, dangerous ground to always tread, but I'll give you a few answers here. No, it's not, Peter. This is perfectly, you're in the trust tree. Nobody else is going to hear So narcissism is obviously the most common thing that you would say is true of a politician. You know, think of everything that you see in the world and the news, right? And there's all these problems and they seem intractable and they've been going on for decades and crises and this and that. And then someone says to themselves, hey, you know what? I'm the answer. I'm the one with all the solutions for this. I mean, that takes a really narcissistic person to think that they should be in charge of things. Uh, a lot of dark side poli- uh, um, traits have been linked with, with political activity. Uh, there's been research on Machiavellianism and associating that with presidential success. And there's some really cool stuff showing that, you know, being really manipulative as a politician can be effective, but only if you're also very smart. If you're not very smart, then it, you know, it doesn't work for you because everyone catches you uh, lying all the time. Um, but you know, to better sort of illustrate, I think what we see with politicians and the dark side traits coming through. I'll just give you a little story here, and it won't be about any politician that's alive today, uh, but rather one a long time ago who was highly successful. So Alcibiades was this general uh, for Athens in the Peloponnesian War. He was a young noble from an aristocratic family, an extremely attractive person. All all the accounts said he was so good looking and so charming. He was actually a student of Socrates, so very well trained um, and very clever. And so they're like, okay, you've got the background, you've got the looks, you've got the brains, let's put you in charge. And he was very successful in the war. He had a lot of unconventional tactics that made him successful. He was good at tricking uh, opponents. He was good at negotiation. He knew how to sow division among his enemies and things like that. And he was also really into big plans. And so one of his biggest plans was that Athens, if they wanted to beat Sparta in this war that they were having, that they should attack Syracuse on the island of Sicily, which at some level, didn't make any sense, but they're like, well, they're not expecting it. They're neutral. And uh, if we conquer them, then we'll sort of have Sparta surrounded and we'll have all these resources and things. So they have this big, huge plan. Uh, but right before the expedition sets off to go and conquer this other uh, city, uh, a whole bunch of statues get destroyed. Um, and people are very upset about this because this is like a religious thing for them. And he got accused of doing it. And they're like, well, he's very hedonistic. He's very impulsive. Uh, And he was exiled. And instead of just going and sitting on the sidelines, he defects to Sparta. And they're initially very skeptical of him, but he decides the way he's going to earn their trust is he's going to become more Spartan than the Spartans. He's going to exercise more and talk tough more and do all these things. And he's also going to give them all the information about the Athenian plans and their defenses. And he's going to suggest that there's lots of plots that the Athenians are up to. And he 
gets their trust. And so the Spartans then make him a general and, and have him start leading their armies as well. So he's successful in Sparta at being a Spartan, as well as he was successful at uh, being a general in a, a, a Athens. Uh, he ultimately gets kicked out of Sparta because he's having an affair with the king's wife. And that's obviously a no-no. So they, they kick him out. What does he do then? He defects to Persia and he tries to induce them to get into the war and persuade them to, you know, take a role and fund different sides and cause all sorts of trouble. Uh, he eventually manages to persuade Athens to let him back. He's restored to power. He becomes a general again. Um, that works for a little while. He ultimately ends up being exiled again after several defeats. Uh, and he's about to uh, apparently get ready to leave for Persia again when he's assassinated, right? Because obviously he's just a treacherous individual. But you see a lot of stuff from Alcibiades' life here that I think you see in a lot of successful and failed politicians. You see narcissism. He thought he was great. He's attractive. He's charming. He's trying to put himself forward no matter where he is. He's incredibly ambitious. You know, wherever he is, he wants to be in charge. He's incredibly morally flexible. And that's something that we see in a lot of politicians where, you know, they'll often have trouble in elections because it's like, well, 10 years ago, you said the opposite. And now you're saying this. And why are they doing that? Well, because now it's politically popular to switch the side. It's not really a, on, on a particular issue. It's not that they they have these, you know, moral backbones. Their their ambition is power. Uh, they can be uh, hugely manipulative. You know, Alcibiades is convincing everyone that he's on their their side. But ultimately, he's only on his own side. He's he's very self-interested. And all of these things seem to be very sort of, you know, not as extreme as that. Obviously, we don't see our politicians uh, defecting uh, to rival nations and things like that anymore. Um, but we do see... Uh, quite often, it seems a, a lack of sort of moral fortitude among uh, political people. And this is one reason, I think, when people are having political debates, why there's so much, what about, what about, what about, where the one side will accuse the other side, you know, well, you were against the filibuster four years ago. Well, now we're against the filibuster, you know, and, and these crazy debates that people have where they can always point to the other side and say it's doing, it has done or, or is doing exactly the same things that they're doing right now is justification. Um, and, you know, for me, like, it's so interesting. And, and for a lot of researchers, it is as well, because there's this ultimate enduring question when it comes to politics, which is, is it that these dark individuals are just attracted to politics? Uh, or is this system inherently corrupting? You know, do people go in authentically wanting to make a difference? And then it's just the money and the power and the system and it's just something about them just sort of wears down or breaks. And and we don't know. But, yeah, that's it. It seems to be very pervasive in the political realm. Well, that is just a fantastic story, Peter. And, and uh, I did not know that story at all. And it really, uh, uh, I, I think, really summarizes this this nicely. The only thing I would, um, my, my, what, my, what I have to add is, is so far less than that. And so uh, if you're listening to this podcast, I recommend going back and playing that part uh, uh, and maybe spending less time here. But um, the only thing I will say is that in, in terms of our own assessments, one of the things that we see in on, on the dark side is that that moving against cluster does seem to be higher among people who um, are really politically skilled. It doesn't necessarily mean they go into politics. It could be politically skilled in their workplace organization or whatever it is. Um, so what we see in that case is we see this high mischievous, that is this sort of uh, creativity, this persuasiveness, this charm, this ability to um, perhaps even manipulate other people to get what they want. We see uh, you know, that, that narcissism, that this high bold, so lots of confidence, um, feeling entitled to more and to, and, and to having that, that kind of authority. Um, and we also see, and one thing that we haven't talked about at all today is is this um, what we call colorful, which is sort of like this flair for the dramatic, this sort of attention-seeking behavior, this wanting to be out front, um, you felt very comfortable in front of the public, um, um, best when the attention is on them, and really frustrated when the attention is not. And and that's one of the, that those three plus imaginative sometimes shows up there as well, but I, I won't get so much into that because it's it's a little more. Uh, nuanced. But uh, big picture here is that we really see that those at least three, if not four scales, um, are pretty important 
at, at being good at politicking and, and doing what politicians do. Yeah. And, you know, getting back to looking at, you know, someone's Hogan results, um, Ryan, those, those three scales that you mentioned, you know, uh, the bold, mischievous, colorful scales, you know, that are part of that um, moving against cluster that we talk about. Anytime I sit down to do a feedback session and I see those three are high and then I look up at the at their bright side and I see that they are really high ambition. And then I look down at their values and see that they're really high on power. Before we even get into it, I just say, have you ever thought about running for politics? And nine times out of 10, their eyes light up and they say, oh, yeah, I like they already have something in mind that they're wanting to run for. And uh, they're like, how do you see that? And I'm like, we're, we're, we're going to get to that. But whenever we start talking about that, you know, what I tell them is I say, hey, look, if your passion is politics and you want to be a politician, you have these things that are going to enable you, these things about your personality that will enable you to get in that position. I said, but what you're going to have to watch out for is when you get there. And you really need to monitor those things whenever you get there, because we don't always see those particular characteristics translate into effective leadership. In fact, quite often, it's the opposite. And so that's really, if, if I'm trying to coach someone who, who is an aspiring politician, that's really a lot of the, the feedback that I, I try to give them. So uh, with that, do you all have any closing thoughts before we wrap this episode up? Well, I would add to that last comment that, you know, for people who are in those positions, uh, what you guys call skeptical uh, tends to work um, because you tend to be really good at detecting political networks and how they work and where potential threats may be. And that can happen at a strategic level level so you know like what your opponents are up to but you also kind of you know if you're if there's an issue with office politics those people are often very very salient of what's going on around them yeah indeed i agree peter being low on skeptical could be like being very low could be could be quite dangerous for a politician who doesn't realize that uh that people are taking advantage of them or or out to get them um, in, in that sort of uh, competitive uh, domain that is that is often the case with politics. Yes, just as sort of a concluding thought, I guess I would say, you know, these these things quite often, they, they get a, a bad rep. You know, they're not bad all the time. It's it's incredibly complicated what you're you're dealing with. And there's you know, one thing I really like about the Hogan model is the sophistication of it, because quite often what you see with um, the dark triad or even some other models, you get these oversimplified things where there's just one way of being bad or that it has to be overtly hostile. And we know from life and from work that sometimes it's the minor things that make the difference. Sometimes it's the stuff we don't see. Uh, that gets us in the end. And so what's going on in your head doesn't necessarily translate always into what's behavior. And so it's, it's well worth knowing these things because they're just incredibly uh, complicated and important and interesting. And, you know, I think we're going to see that these things become, I, I think we're going to see more and more evidence for how important these things are in the workplace and in other domains of life uh, moving forward. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that, Peter. I mean, I think that, um, you know, a lot of stuff that makes headlines, we hear about CEOs that are, you know, sort of overly entitled or narcissistic or take on too much or psychopathic or things like that. And those things make all the headlines. But a lot of these dark side traits are much more subtle. Um, and the CEOs who get into those roles, that those they sort of have those kind of traits that, that we see as really um, uh, sort of explosive and attention grabbing, but a lot of dark side traits are a lot are much more subtle uh, and uh, in many ways much more insidious for organizations, much more uh, uh, toxic for the organization to to overcome and deal with. And a lot we see a lot of those in our own data. We see a lot of those in mid level managers or sort of like career mid level managers. Um, and so what we're finding is that, that that this sort of dark side stuff is eating away the the organization from the inside. And, and, and very few people are paying attention to it because it doesn't grab the headlines. It doesn't stick out as much as some of these, these other traits. But I think we're kind of coming to the end of the show here. I think Blake's going to cut me off if I don't stop talking. So I do want to say thank you very much, Peter, for coming on the show today. You're a fantastic guest. 
and uh, your, your insights on the dark side are uh, uh, always uh, really fantastic to hear. And uh, I'm sure we're going to have you back on the podcast again in the well, future. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah, Peter, I would actually love to have you on. We'll just do an entire episode on the movie Yay. 300. Let's let's just, let's get out there and talk. Let's talk about Leonidas cool. next time. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode four of the Science of Personality podcast. Uh, join us two weeks from now, where we will be talking about diversity and inclusion with Willard McLeod III, who is the VP of Human Resources and the Global Head of Diversity and Inclusion for Pfizer. So you're not going to want to miss that episode. And join us next time for episode five. Thank you all. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.